Let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa. So tonight I'm going to talk about rejoicing. This talk is especially aimed at those meditators who are leaving tomorrow. In this talk, I will mention a few things which may be helpful for your further day-to-day practice. And I hope that it will also be beneficial for those meditators who stay on. (coughs) Having embarked on a spiritual journey, time and again, we find ourselves confronted with the fact that we are not flowing with the mainstream. Our spiritual quest is not an activity that is supported or promoted by large advertising companies. (laughs) And so, trying to integrate our spiritual practice into their lives, people find themselves swimming or going against the stream. In German, we have the saying, No tote Fische schwimmen mit dem Strom, which uh, translates as, Only the dead fishes swim with the stream or go with the current of the stream. If we look around in this world, then the dead fishes far outnumber those fishes which are really alert and awake. And so therefore, it's only natural that we want to be in the company of other alive and alert fishes. So this is like in the story of Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mogalana when they left the first teacher to join the Buddha. Before Venerable Mogalana and Venerable Sariputta became monks under the Buddha, they were the disciples of an ascetic teacher called Sanjaya. Although they were their disciple, uh, his disciples, but the two of them were not fully satisfied with their teacher's teaching or doctrine. And so still they were looking for something better or they were still looking for the deathless. So one day, uh, Upatissa, who was later to become Venerable Sariputta, 
met the Venerable Asaji, who was one of the first five monks uh, who had become uh, enlightened after listening to the Buddha's first two discourses. And so Upatissa listened to a verse recited by Venerable Asaji, and by listening to it, he attained to the first stage of enlightenment. He became a Sotapanna. And so, after that encounter, he went back to see his friend, uh, Kolita, and he was to become Venerable Mogalana, and told him that he had encountered a monk who was a disciple of the Buddha, and in which, in whose teaching, a way to complete deliverance could be found. And he related the verse that he had heard, and when Kolita heard that verse, he also became a Sotapanna, established uh, as a stream enterer. And so, after that, together they went to their teacher, Sanjaya, and told him, a Buddha has appeared in this world. Let's all of us go and see, see this master. But Sanjaya, the teacher, refused to go with them and said that uh, they could become the co-leaders of the community. And Sanjaya spoke of the gain and fame that they would receive by becoming um, co-leaders uh, of that community. But the two friends were not interested in gain and fame, and they said, we do not mind remaining pupils for the rest of our lives, but you teacher, you must know for yourself. And with this, Sanjaya realized that these two, these two students of him would not uh, uh, regard him as teacher any longer. And so he said, well then, you two, you can go, but I won't come along. And so the two asked, well, why? And so Sanjaya replied, I'm a teacher of many. I have hundreds of uh, disciples. So if I were to revert to the state of a disciple, it would be like as if a huge pot of water were to change into a small cup. I cannot live the life of a pupil now. And the two friends still continued to urge him to join them and come to see the Buddha because it was such a rare opportunity that a Buddha had arisen in the world. To that, Sanjaya replied, What do you think? Are there more fools in this world or are there more wise people in this world? And they answered, There are many fools in this world, but the wise are only very few.
And Sanjaya replied to that, if that is so, then the wise ones, the wise ones will go to the wise recluse Gotama, the Buddha, and the fools will come to me, the fool. So you go now, I will not come. To speak with Sanjaya, the wise will come to BMI and C, the fools will stay at the place of their preference. So when we engage in intensive meditation practice, it is a great and invaluable support to be in a place where other people are doing the same thing. And also the Buddha had stressed the importance of having good spiritual friends and to seek the company of like-minded people. Once the Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, approached the Buddha and said, Isn't it so that half of the spiritual life is to have good friends? And to this the Buddha replied, Do not say so, Ananda. To have good friends is not only half of the spiritual life, but it is the entire spiritual life. So all of you have come here to spend a certain period of time uh, in intensive retreat and practice meditation all day long. So one of the advantages to come here to a center and not going off to a remote cabin somewhere on the beach or in the mountains or in the desert is the fact that being here at the center there are other meditators who engage in the same practice. So you have Kalyana Mittas, good spiritual friends. And you have also a teacher who gives you instructions and guidance. And to have your fellow meditators uh, around you, they are a visible uh, support and encouragement for your practice. And this is especially so in times when the practice is challenging or even difficult. Then, just to have other people around you doing the same thing can be a very great and valuable support. So besides of having outer, conducive, suitable conditions, It is important that the mind is looking into the right direction and that there be a general wholesome mental attitude. Generally speaking, we are very good and quick to see the negative qualities of another person or of a situation. We are so skilled in finding faults 
with others or put the blame on others, put the blame out there. This can also be very little trivial things, like for example, the rice that was not properly cooked and so gives you problems with digestion in the afternoon. Or it can be uh, the noisy meditator in the room next to you who is noisier than you think he or she should be. So instead of quickly or simply getting caught up in discontent or ill will, we simply could remember that there is an other side to it. So to be happy about the fact that we have good and nourishing food that uh, sustains our body and gives us the strength to practice. Or we can simply rejoice at these other meditators' good intention and commitment to stay here and um, commit himself or herself to this practice for the purification of the heart and mind. We not only see and look for faults in other persons or situations, but we are also experts in finding faults with ourselves. We can be so harsh and even cruel with ourselves, condemning qualities that we think we should not have. And this can really pull us down and make us feel uh, miserable. And in extreme cases, this can lead to low self-esteem and depression. Again here, instead of dwelling unnecessarily on these negative qualities, we can turn the mind around and look at those good and wholesome qualities that we are also endowed with. Or at least we can become aware of a good and helpful action that we performed and feel happy about the fact that we did something good or helpful. So this can be such a small act as holding the door of the dining hall, hall uh, open for the person uh, behind you. Or simply by looking uh, at the cups and plates on the shelf you could feel happy and joyous because it was your yogi job to wash them and dry them and now they are ready and uh, clean for the next use. So rather than dwelling unnecessarily on the thought that dishwashing or drying the dishes takes such a long time and therefore shortens your time for formal uh, meditation, you simply could turn around the mind and look at it from a different angle. In a book about the life of a Taiwanese bhikkhuni nun called Cheng Yin, I found the story 
of a woman called Lin Mei. She is 53 years old and she was suffering from polio since the age of two. And when she was 43, she got a bad rheumatic fever and with that she lost the ability to speak intelligible. So Lin Mei, this woman, uh, lives in a small apartment and she has to be cared for by a nurse who also prepares the meals for her. Lin Mei gets a very small pension from the government and whatever is left at the end of the month she donates to the many projects of this bikuni um, Jing Yin and they are especially in the uh, projects in the health sector. In Lin Mei owns words, giving is a joyful thing. Knowing that I can give at the month's end, that makes me feel strong and happy the rest of the time. So we should remember that Lin Mei is not able to walk and her ability to speak is very limited. So there would be a lot of opportunity to dwell on her uh, suffering and on her bad fortune and consequently feel miserable and unhappy all the time. But she has developed a positive mental outlook and despite of her unfortunate situation, she spends her days quite happily and joyfully. Likewise, we could rejoice in our own goodness and feel happy every time we do something good. Isn't it so that as human beings we strive to attain happiness and we avoid to be confronted with suffering? Despite our sincere efforts, we never get it quite right. Even though we might attain some happiness at some time, we are definitely confronted with suffering as well. And when we are confronted with suffering, be that our own suffering or be that the suffering of other beings, we are often pulled down with this suffering and our minds react with despair or grief, resentment or frustration or ill will, worry or with self-pity. There is suffering around in this world. There is no doubt about this fact. The Buddha realized that and so he mentioned that as the first noble truth. It's Dukkha Satcha, the truth of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. If people hear that statement and uh, 
respect that the Buddha started the Four Noble Truths with stating the truth of suffering, they might think the Buddha's teaching is quite pessimistic or a bit a sinister teaching, only dwelling on suffering. Before I became a nun, at one time I was doing a retreat in Dharamsala in India, where many Tibetan refugees live, and also uh, which is the seat of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And so in, the, in that retreat, was in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, it was a Western Buddhist nun who was leading this retreat. And she talked extensively about suffering, about suffering in the human realm, about the suffering of the animals, the suffering of the petas, the sufferings in the hell realms, and so on. And so she gave lengthy descriptions of all the different kinds of suffering that beings um, have to go through. After about three or four days into this retreat, as we were queuing up for lunch, another meditator, uh, he was Swiss, and for him it was the very first uh, meditation retreat that he, he did. So he tipped on my shoulder, leaned a bit forward and asked, is this all that Buddhism is about? Is it just about suffering? Isn't there anything else to it? And so I told him, well, that it wasn't only about suffering and that it was definitely about other aspects as well. But this well, Western nun, for whatever reasons, she just um, dwelled on talking about on suffering. So in our endeavor to achieve lasting happiness, we must sow the seeds for happiness to arise. And generally speaking, happiness arises by performing wholesome and beneficial actions. So these actions of body, speech and mind are neither are neither harmful for ourselves nor do they inflict any harm or suffering on other beings. And in the five precepts we have the very basic guidelines of what are considered to be wholesome and beneficial actions of body and speech. So these are basically the first five precepts uh, out of the nine that we chant every morning. <coughs> In the five precepts, instead of uh, refraining from all sexual activity, it's to refrain from sexual misconduct. So, one of the qualities that is a wholesome action and can contribute a lot 
to our happiness and welfare is rejoicing. Rejoicing means that in witnessing or hearing about somebody's happiness or success, our minds become naturally happy, joyful and delighted. So instead of becoming jealous when somebody gets a huge fortune, then we can wholeheartedly feel happy about the other person's good luck and fully rejoice in that without the slightest feelings of resentment or discontent. So rejoicing is a congratulatory attitude that can be joyous at the success and happiness of others. And the main aim of rejoicing is to free the mind from jealousy, to free it from envy. In the late 80s, I was traveling in Indonesia and I was hopping from one island to another. And one afternoon I arrived uh, earlier than usual at the uh, new destination. So I went to a small guest house and I did some laundry, washing almost all my clothes that I had in my backpack. And then I hang them uh, up in the backyard of this uh, guest house. And after having, that, after having done that, I went out uh, for a walk into the little town. Later on in the afternoon, when I returned to the guest house, I went around the guest house to the backyard to uh, collect my clothes. But when I uh, turned around the corner, I noticed that the washing line was almost empty, which meant that almost all of my clothes had gone, that they had been stolen. And so among the things that I had washed was a pair of uh, pants that I had bought in Australia, here in Sydney. And they were quite special because they were hand-painted, and so they were quite a unique pair. And among all the clothes, not so many, but among them which I had with me, they were my uh, favorite piece. And so now they had gone. And so my first reaction was, Oh, my beautiful pants, gone. <laughs> what a pity. But then, immediately after that, a second thought arose, and that was, ah, may the person who has these pants now be happy and delighted about them. May he or she uh, um, be happy to wear these pants. So this incident showed me very clearly that the reaction to a certain uh, event makes such a huge difference. For the first uh, moment, I was stuck by feelings of loss and anger, blame and resentment. 
And as a result of these feelings, I was miserable, I was unhappy. But then, with the spontaneous arising of the second thought, the world looked completely different. I was feeling great joy and delight, and therefore I was happy. So the fact or the condition was the same. My clothes had disappeared. They were gone. And in that moment of the discovery, I had no means to get them back right then and there. But depending on my mental attitude or reaction, I could either create distress and misery for myself, or I could create a happy and delighted mind. So joy and happiness were just one thought away from misery and suffering. Rejoicing in others' happiness and success is a great way to make ourselves happy and delighted. True and genuine joy in other beings' happiness and welfare is not so easy. Our joy uh, might also be tainted with jealousy or ill will and resentment. In our struggle for survival and happiness, it seems to be so difficult when others are better off than we are. It's difficult to see when they are more successful or when they are happier, when they are wealthier, or when they are more respected. Instead of seeing our fellow human beings as allies, we see them only as enemies who are to be conquered or who need to be outdone. And on the basis of this attitude, there can never arise a feeling of appreciative joy. When we constantly compare ourselves with others, better, worse, richer, more uh, affluent, and so on, then we actually increase the gap between ourselves and others. And instead of sympathetic joy, we only strengthen and maybe even increase uh, various unwholesome mental states. So uh, rejoicing is neither judging nor does it compare our situation with the uh, situation of others. Alone the fact that this other person is happy or healthy or just uh, got a huge fortune, this is enough that we can fully rejoice in this other person's uh, success, good fortune. In their delusion, 
people might have the idea that there is only a limited amount of happiness out there in the world. And therefore, when others are happy or successful, this means that their potential share of happiness has been reduced. And so that's one of the reasons why why people's initial joy is often tainted with the worry whether or not there will be enough happiness for them. In fact, the opposite is the case. Sympathetic joy multiplies and strengthens the existing uh, joy and happiness. And this is true for both sides, that, that is for the happy person as well as for the person who rejoices in that person's happiness. Again, in German, we have the saying, geteilte Freude ist doppelte Freude, or in English, shared joy is double joy. Or the famous doctor Albert Schweitzer, who established a hospital in the jungle of uh, Africa at the beginning of the 20th century, he expressed it with these words, saying, Happiness is the only thing in this world that is doubled, if only it is shared. In traditional Asian Buddhist countries, the sharing of merits belongs to the fundamental practices of every Buddhist. After carrying out a wholesome deed, such as practicing generosity, or listening to a Dhamma talk, or uh, keeping the precepts, or engaging in the meditation practice, so then the merit or positive energy of this wholesome deed is shared with other living beings. So this practice helps open the heart to other living beings, wanting them to have a share of uh, this goodness. And it shows us that by sharing our wholesome qualities, the joy is actually not only doubled, but it is multiplied many, many times. And another aspect of sharing merits is this. We share the merit in recognition of the fact that our spiritual practice is not uh, done for uh, us alone. In whatever belief we are rooted, our spiritual practice can never be isolated from other living beings. And so the act of sharing merits with other living beings can uh, bring this understanding back if we should have forgotten it. But overcome with delusion, 
people see themselves as a separate entity. They see this separate entity as fundamentally different from others and therefore they need to care for this separate entity. And so then the success of other uh, human beings becomes a threat to them. And so the immediate reaction is one of jealousy or envy. Then people cannot stand it when others are better, when they are richer, when they are more intelligent. Avarice and stinginess are two other mental states that become an obstacle for the cultivation of sympathetic joy. If the mind is filled (coughs) with these unwholesome qualities, then people hold on to the things they possess or they even hide their possessions so that they don't need to share uh, with others. So what they have, what they belong, what, what belongs to them or what they know should only belong to them. They want to be the only person who owns such a thing. They want to be uh, more knowledgeable than other persons. And so if somebody else has the same thing or knows more, then they become jealous. The root of avarice and stinginess is aversion towards others as well as attachment to material or non-material things. And this, of course, is completely opposed to sympathetic joy, which is the ability to fully and sincerely rejoice in other beings' happiness and success. Then aversion and boredom are to other uh, unwholesome forces that um, oppose the arising of sympathetic joy. Aversion is basically an expression of a closed heart. And from our own experience, we know how painful uh, it is when our heart is closed and shut off off from other persons. And still, it happens again and again that we are caught by aversion, that our heart becomes closed. And so, with a closed heart, it's very difficult to see uh, a good good aspect uh, in other persons. Sometimes our heart is not closed because of aversion, but simply because there is boredom uh, in the mind or uh, disinterest in what is happening. The mind is simply not interested what is going on um, around the person. 
So then there is this disinterest, the mind is dull, completely oblivious of what is going around the person. And in this uh, state of mind, when there is no interest, when the mind is dull, when the heart is closed off, then we miss all the little uh, moments and events of daily life which we could rejoice in. We could rejoice in the thousand little wonders of nature and we could rejoice in the happiness or success of other beings. So as we go out for a walk, if the mind is just dull and disinterested, it won't notice anything (coughs) enjoyable or anything to rejoice in. But when the mind is free, from this dullness or disinterest, when it's alert and awake, then couldn't it be a cause for happiness and joy to arise when we see a little girl feeding the swans near the river? Or couldn't it be um, a cause for happiness and joy to arise when we see our neighbor coming back from the hairdresser with Uh, stylish haircut. So if we could overcome this dull and inert state of mind and go through our lives fully awake and alert, then everywhere and anytime we could notice things, persons or situations which could arouse joy and delight. So rejoicing is a way of developing and strengthening a wholesome attitude of the mind. And this doesn't need a lot of theoretical knowledge. And it also doesn't need the engagement of a long and intensive meditation retreat. It is simply the ability to see the good things in life, in other persons, or other beings, and then rejoice in that. Even while relaxing or taking rest, we could gain great merit at no cost by simply recalling the happiness or the success of another being and then fully rejoice in it. What is needed to do so is a radical shift in our attitude and understanding. And on top of that, just to remember it throughout the day. Each little incident or each encounter with a person or another being can be the cause for joy to arise. We only need to look at the situation uh, from the right angle. We only need to look um, from the right perspective.
in the meditation centers in Burma, it is custom that uh, people sometimes come to offer a meal. And like in our center, mostly they would donate a certain amount of money for the kitchen in the meditation center to prepare the meal. But then they would come uh, for the meal to offer it uh, to the monks and to all the meditators. And so when these people come from outside, they just come around 10 o'clock to be ready for the offering at 10.30. That's the meal time. So when they come from outside, because they are not engaging uh, in meditation practice, you know, they would come and talk to each other. Sometimes they invite their friends, their relatives, families, and, you know, they would bring along their kids. And also, of course, the kids, they would run around and shout at each other. And so then the calm and peaceful atmosphere of the meditation center would be disrupted for uh, a little while. And when I first got to Burma, uh, to the meditation center in Yangon, every time the donors for a meal would come and then walk past the meditation hall because the dining hall was very close to the meditation hall. So when they were talking and laughing and the kids running around and shouting at each other, I would get quite upset and uh, I would give them long admonitions of how to behave in a meditation center. Well, mental admonitions. (laughs) But later on, then I was able um, not to get upset anymore at these people being noisy and uh, disruptive, but I was able to fully rejoice in these people's good heart uh, to offer this meal, which was a much-needed support uh, for the center. And, of course, it was also uh, great support for all the meditators because we we didn't need to uh, do any yogi jobs but we uh, are just supposed to, to be meditating. And so then, when they came, and even uh, when they were a bit noisy, I just felt this joy and delight and gratitude that through their generous dana, I could uh, dedicate myself fully to the meditation practice. So this ability to rejoice in others' happiness and success is one of the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abidings. And this quality of rejoicing or sympathetic joy is called mudita in Pali. I found an interesting analogy for mudita which illustrates the kind of joy that we should uh, develop and cultivate. 
the image given for boundless uh, sympathetic joy is that of a mother camel finding her lost calf. Of all the animals, camels are considered the most affectionate mothers. If a mother camel loses her calf, her sorrow is correspondingly intense. But should she find it again, her joy knows no bounds. That is the kind of sympathetic joy that we should try to develop. So this quality of sympathetic joy, or mudita, is often a bit overlooked. Mudita's big sister, Metta, is much better known and more commonly practiced. Although when we uh, develop loving-kindness, the joy in the success and happiness of others is included. But we often neglect to specifically uh, develop and cultivate this quality of rejoicing. So we should develop and and cultivate our hearts and minds to first see and acknowledge and then secondly to fully rejoice in other people's happiness, in other beings' success. And when we do so, when this quality of uh, rejoicing in other people's uh, happiness, uh, success and so on, then as a result we will be much less prone to be overcome with negative mental states like jealousy, envy, or resentment, or anger. So with the practice of mudita, rejoicing, we can make our mind and heart more joyful. So when there is a sense of joy in the practice, this will uplift our spirits and also open up our hearts to the thousand little wonders and joys of life. So with this, I end this talk. May all of you be able to rejoice in the good fortune to be here and be able to practice uh, meditation. May all of you be free from suffering and achieve ultimate happiness and peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.